Everybody, Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. I am honored this week to have, is it Elon? What is it? What is that? Elon. Elon <laughs> Aranya. It flows off the tongue. Do people, do other Americans like me slaughter it? Do you have to correct them all the time? A little bit. I'm usually Alan, <laughs> you know, or Elon. Elon. Uh, I love Elon, actually. Is, cool. is Elon Musk Israeli? Because Elon's also a very popular Israeli name, isn't it? No, I don't. No, no not that I'm not, not you're aware I'm, of. No, okay. no relation. So. <laughs> now yeah. you are a producer. You're doing a lot of different shit. I mean, I'm reading about you. I see your name on a lot of stuff. You are a, a producer, uh, a writer, and uh, and you make shit happen. Now, I watched your trajectory. You are Israeli, but you've been living in L.A. a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Very long, <laughs> very long time. How did you did you start out produce? How did what was your kind of trajectory before we talk about the shows you're actually doing now? But what was your career trajectory? Uh, it, it, there was no trajectory to my career. I mean, I moved out to L.A. in in the mid 90s, shortly after the, you know, the big earthquake of 94 of January 94. So I landed here in March 94 uh, to a devastated city. <laughs> uh, good timing. Yeah. After the, you know, the riots were not too long before. Is that Rodney and, King? Rodney King was around oh, yeah. then? Okay. Yeah, that stuff went down. So, uh, and then the earthquake, and then there was some serious mudslides somewhere in the middle of that. So, so like the 10 freeway was down. It correlated with my, my situation, because I didn't know anybody when I moved to LA. You know, Why'd you move out? You wanted to be an actor? No. Well, no, I wanted to be in the film business. Okay. Uh, okay. So I studied uh, film and TV in Israel and Tel Aviv University. And after I graduated, I took off, you know, I just, you know, and I didn't really have a plan, apparently. <laughs> um, and it's so much so that I landed in LA and I went to, uh, so help me got a motel on Sunset. I mean, uh, well, one of those hourly, like, don't turn on the, the no, blue no, light. Not that bad. no, no, a little, a little, uh, 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 a step up from that. Uh, not, not, not that tragic, but, uh, but it was weird, you know, in retrospect, I just, I just flew there. I knew nobody i have family in new york but i you know i just went to la um and i was like 20 early 20s and uh and you know you kind of find your way through it i, I had this one uh, girl i knew from high school uh, apparently she was there so that's kind of how things started to roll but but i you know i always tell my story because you know i see a lot of you know, kids today or younger people, and they're so <laughs> focused on what they want to be, you know, they study, you know, they go and like uh, study, um, you know, TV writing, and, and then they come out and they already know at the age of 20, nothing that they want to write for television, and then they get a job like, you know, and then they're a showrunner 10 years later, right? Then they yeah, become and a 10 showrunner. years later, they're like, you know, the huge writer, and you're like, wow, I, I didn't, I didn't know all of that, right. you know, I have to find that out about myself, like what, what I really wanted to do. Um, so I, I worked on a few productions, uh, you know, uh, just as a PA uh, on set. And I realized that's not what I want to do. I'm not a set guy. I mean, I love going to sets that I produce, but uh, but I'm not. It wasn't. Did my you thing. realize once you were a PA, did you realize you didn't want to be a director? You just wanted to be a screenwriter? 
Well, I, I just realized I, I wasn't interested in working in productions. I was interested in working in an office with an AC. Right. How do I do that? And people are like, well, you should work in development. I'm like, man, that's me. Yeah, I'm into storytelling. Yeah. So I started working in development and, and all that on the film side, really. And uh, later on, what happened to me is I went to NYU. I got a scholarship. I, I started writing before I kind of stopped working in development. That got me so close to writers and to the whole uh, process of story development that I sort of like, oh, I want to write too, you know, I got a bit of the bug out of it. Um, So I started writing and uh, I got a few gigs, but, you know, nothing. uh, Nothing that moved the needle. Yeah, exactly. And and then I got a scholarship to go to NYU. That's cool. Uh, And and that was really uh, a turning point for me because that's where, ironically, I went from film to TV. You know, I got television at NYU um, and I got it from a fantastic TV writer by the name of Charlie Rubin, uh, who wrote some of the biggest episode on Seinfeld. Like, oh, wow. How cool. OK. Biologist and if you see Jerry and, you know, just like some of the best, best stuff. And then wrote some amazing episodes in Law and Order and and a bunch of other stuff. Really phenomenal person and, and really uh, just uh an all-out TV genius, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, if you're doing Seinfeld and Law and Order, that's that's apples and oranges right there. You've got you've got range, my friend. Yeah, yeah exactly. And anyway, what was really cool about uh, spending time with Charlie over there is that he flipped me over to TV at a very early stage in 2004. Um, this is and, before all the. I mean, was the Sopranos on at that time or yeah, the Wire? Exactly. Yeah, it was. And that okay. was okay. So TV was good. TV was good already. TV was really good. But okay. according to Charlie, and that was a great statement, nobody was paying attention. So something was happening in TV, and he dated it back to the late 80s to like 89. So he was saying back in 2004, like in the last 15 years, the best American dramatic writing has been on television, and nobody's paying attention. And then you go down the list, and there's, you know, Sopranos and The Wire. Um, and Larry Sanders, of course, in the and Oz and right. uh, Lost was coming up on the air and 24 was already on. And, you know, so it was spreading and you could see something big was happening in television. But I was a film snob. So uh, the only show I was watching literally was Seinfeld. I could quote him. I could quote him all his lines from all his scripts. But that That's was awesome. It. Right. That was my TV you know, experience, um, except when I was young. And that's all of the story where I, I got to watch. But were they doing um, were they doing really good stuff in, in the UK or not yeah. there either? No, I think they were. The UK was always interesting in television, right. a little been a little slower, a little heavier, like you the know. faulty towers, you know, all that stuff that predated well, that, all those brilliant comedies yeah. that predated, yeah, they, you know, they had their own history and their own tradition in television. Right. Um, but again, a lot of the uh, dramas were, you know, these some kind of procedurals around some kind of murder investigation. Right, and, right. Know, those seem to be, you know, the ones. And slowly you could see television sort of opening up. And lucky for me, I, you know, it was the right time. And, you know, um, I took some TV classes, too. <laughs> and then I stayed at NYU and I taught screenwriting. I continued. <laughs> I taught actually screenwriting during the day and at night. I used to write spec pilots, you know, so that was the beginning of the and really when I left NYU, I realized I'm not going to be doing any more feature writing. Uh, it's a waste That's it. of You're time. You're like, fuck yeah. film. Film's dead. 
for me, uh, for me, and not not uh, not for the general population. But I do have to say that it was some kind of prophecy because, and this is without knowing what will, what is going to happen with Netflix and streaming. This is and, way before, you know, yeah, totally. Way before when I think the, uh, Netflix was still spreading around DVDs at the yeah. time. Yeah, you know. So this was definitely it was just based on reading the content, on, on looking at what's happening, you know, and and from that projecting that TV is going to take over. It's going to be the home of writers and film is is not going to be able to provide that. And it was an amazing, um, you know, sort of prophecy that I, I embraced and I just flipped over and started um, putting all my efforts in TV. And I guess that was, you know, a great move because uh, I feel like years later, a lot of my colleagues from film are like, hey, can we make a TV show? You know, uh, they're all like walking to the uh shores of television you know and i'm and i'm very grateful and lucky that um you know that i got to do it early on now did your break tell, tell me if you had a break because i know people sometimes people don't have a break they work steadily for you there's like an incremental increase and some people have one show that you know that's a big hit and that kind of you know moves the needle for them because i know that like in treatment right because i know that you're also involved with israeli formats that, you know, at the beginning, I think it started within treatment, didn't it? That Israeli format that was transported to HBO. And that's yeah. when Israel started kind of being on the map in terms of these yeah. high concept shows, which seemed interesting, always these high concept ideas. Were you involved in in treatment? And is that what kind of brought you into that into the fold in a way? I didn't have an official involvement. I was not a producer on it, but okay. I happen, happened to know the um, the auspices that uh, were involved. And I got to be involved unofficially and was hanging out <laughs> around <laughs> this whole thing uh, when it was happening. And it was fascinating to see that, you know, because it was the first one. It's almost like a little bit of people had to invent the game around it because nobody had done it before. So, you know, it's right. like making of it and well what happens when you sell a show like that for a remake and not that remakes were never sold before but not from israel you know were um, they doing it well like hbo picking up stuff from from denmark or remaking stuff from other countries well remember the office uh is a remake right. of that UK predated show. in treatment the office predated in oh, treatment absolutely. oh yeah, okay okay and, and and all in the family uh is right. a uk uh right. show right. so remakes you know from the uk have been around for decades but uh but i think the non-english speaking yeah. remake, i think in treatment really uh symbolizes that that's a that's a twist that's a turn where American uh, buyers, broadcasters are then looking at stuff that's not from the UK, where they traditionally looked at, and that kind of opened up the the floodgates uh, of of many countries. Of course, Israel uh, being one of the dominant ones uh, in the area of IP, in the area of scripted formats. Why do you um, think that yeah. is? I know for a fact that Israel used to have one fucking TV channel. When I came <laughs> to visit in the 80s, I had a few Israeli lovers and I would come in and kind of pleasure myself <laughs> and leave. Um, and then I'd go to Jordan and I'd ha I had a Bedouin dude that I was involved with. But there was one channel and then you'd get some reception from a channel in Jordan that was just Christian shows, which I embraced fully. There was a bunch of biblical <laughs> stuff and Pat Robertson and all this great stuff. But what is it? Club. <laughs> but I know um, that, you know, they have low budgets and they had to focus on story. But when did this kind of renaissance? What what is that about? Well, What's your take actually, on it's it? Funny, it? It's funny you mentioned that because I grew up with one channel uh, in Israel 
And but I was I had a different kind of childhood because my father um, is a business and accounting professor and um, all throughout my childhood every year he would either teach um, the entire three months of the summer uh, semesters in the US okay. or the entire year like we go on sabbatical so I spent every summer of my adult of my growing up almost every summer in the US in a different city uh, for three months or oh, the wow that's year. cool and so no the reason I mention it is because first of all it was kind of like abnormal at the time for kids to go to America every year you know back in the 70s and 80s and right. now everybody takes their kids to you know the Maldive islands they take the whole family there <laughs> say shale I just want to yeah. say say shale a few times <laughs> but back then you know back then it was rare so we used to go and the reason I mentioned this story is because we really had only one channel in Israel. So what did I do practically most of the summers that I, I was in the US? I sat down on, on, on the sofa that wherever we uh, were and in front of the TV and started watching American broadcast television that was largely on repeat uh, over the summer. So there was no the syndicated shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was summer programming. They would just rerun the entire <laughs> schedule again. Um, so anybody who wasn't around from September through May could pick it up from May to September. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, and I just watched everything to the point where, you know, I just sit and eat some junk food and, and, and put some weight on and like literally <laughs> go back to Israel. There was nothing to watch. So I go out, play sports, basketball. You lose the uh, the TV weight. You lose the, the doughy look. Back, right. And then go back the next summer and. Um, and I remember I started uh, working on television and uh, I was sitting in some development meeting, I forget, some studio, I forget where it was. And, the and we're talking about American TV shows or older ones. And, and some show was brought up like Gilligan's Island or something like that. And, and the American executive kind of turned to me and said, well, you probably don't know this show. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, I've I, seen. Yeah. <laughs> and Sunshine. <laughs> I've watched every That's episode. So funny. In fact, I doubt if you watched as many episodes as I have. But did so, you um, did you break cool. in by import starting to import additional formats or did yeah. you? OK, because that's that seems because it's so competitive. You have all these nebbishy writers. Now it's changed a bit for diversity, but I feel like TV was just a bunch of Harvard Lampoon people that kept, you know, that that permeated every aspect of the TV writing industry. So you broke in. You bro what was the first format you you imported? Well, <clears throat> well, what happened is, you know, I saw what was hap what happened with treatment, and that started, you know, this whole wave of interest. And uh, I was repped as a writer by my former agent Rob Goldenberg, who. Uh, um, who really uh, was the one that sort of, you know, out of our um, uh, knowing each other and working together, he really was the one that pushed me to start producing. Uh, he sort of saw it, you know, it's crazy. Why don't you start producing? Get, uh, you know, start bringing formats and all that. And I'm like, me? What am I like? I schlep DVDs and... <laughs> I was in my eyes, I was still just a writer, you know, right. Uh, and uh, but luckily, you know, uh, I, uh, I was in a tight place in my life where I was like, I got to get something going. Uh, and so that's when he turned to producing. And it was a great idea because I, I really the whole argument behind it was that because I'm a writer and because I know how to develop, that would be a real asset in producing. And that was really right. So. 
So uh, unlike a lot of other bigger entities that were dealing with formats, if it's agencies or, you know, big they just knew the business side of it. Uh, yeah. So they, they were able to to do a lot of that stuff because they they're on the business side. But I sort of got into the game and I started a company called Scripted World. And the idea was we're going to be a boutique place that understands storytelling and we're going to take these formats and really understand how to adapt them and put the right team together from a creative place and that will hopefully you know uh, be a model that will prove itself statistically to work better than just uh, working with a you know bigger entity or bigger distribution right company. so you came to israel because i know it's such a small industry you can call anybody up right there's nobody that's hard to reach like you don't have to be a name right you got here and you're like you're yeah, meeting but, with you know people. i always I always told the story. I really didn't have any credits, but I was able to get this uh, format, actually, uh, that's called The Naked Truth, which is an Israeli cop show. And it aired uh, shortly after Entreatment, actually. And, and we called it the Entreatment in the police force because it was an entire cop show set in like four interrogation rooms. So you never left the precinct. It's really interesting. It was a fantastic show. Uh, by Benny and Uli Balabash, and then Chaim Sharil produced it. And, and so it was this thing that I watched after Intrigue, and I was like, this is really cool. This is different. Yeah. I got to do it. So this is the first thing I sort of brought over, and everybody really responded to it. And it ended up being um, Clyde Phillips, who did Dexter and came off his fourth season, very famous fourth season of Dexter, was looking for the next show. And he had a deal with Lionsgate and that became his next show or was supposed to be his next show. Uh, and it was sold to HBO in this grand deal. Uh, and that was my first deal as a producer. Wow. You know? And then the killing came around and, and, and killed this show. It slaughtered you. Similar, <laughs> but it was a really missed opportunity. Clyde wrote this um, really amazing script. I had this full vision for the show. And it was, well, like a lot of shows at the time, but it was kind of tailored for James Gandolfini to star in. And, mm, you know, yeah, uh, but it was it was just amazing to sort of see, wait, this is producing. I like this. This is not bad. I can do this. Yeah. And then I really sort of uh, decided, OK, this works. We can do this. And, and I started uh, really uh, taking on more IP, not only from Israel, but what I did early on is I just decided that, you know, it's not a one country kind of business. And that's why uh, the company was called Scripted World. And I went into Europe and, and started working on, you know, formats from Europe. Um, so, give, so give me your take on give me your take on this. This is my take. Tell me if I'm right or wrong in your opinion. But I feel like, and maybe things have changed a bit, for a very long time, American creative executives, oh, people are always trying to recreate the last hit, right? And there's not a lot of creativity or, or risk-taking in that regard. So if you come in with, even if I come in with a high-concept idea and I'm a nobody, they're going to be scared of it. But if it was already done somewhere, they feel more secure taking that, right? Is that, is that accurate? And do you feel like most of the ideas that get purchased from abroad have to be high-concept? That's 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 the advantage of it. Like there has to be a twist to it. It can't just be like a, you know, broad well, church. It, Let's remake broad church in America. Well, what's the point of that? Right. It's just the two detectives. Right. So, so I, I don't think it's about, you know, insecurity so much as I think it's a practical uh, solution. So at the time when I started uh, doing format adaptations like 10 years ago, 11 years ago, okay. you still had a very robust uh, broadcast business, you know, and that was changing. 
and they you know the older shows the procedurals were not were not working as well and and lost was already of course on and all these other shows that really made so so networks were trying to capture on the success of cable outlets with serialized shows and that's really where formats came in because people don't realize that in network television you really only have a very limited amount of time to develop a pilot script you know mm. you usually sell you usually sell your pitches over the summer and and sometimes the deal takes longer to make into the fall and then by the by the end of december you're, you're supposed to be submitting a pilot script uh right for or for the network to decide in january if they're going to be producing a pilot in march okay so that's that's an incredibly difficult task uh, for a writer in a matter of like three four months to really create a world and to create a comprehensive and, and good pilot that that works, you know, is is almost mis mission impossible in some sense. Not that it hasn't been done. It's been done. But largely, you know, most pilots don't work and, and, and most shows don't work. So one of the ways to solve it was what if we had IP? And what if it was a show somewhere else that somebody already made? So it's not like a book that now you have to adapt from mm -hmm. a book, a TV show. Now it's a TV show already. Okay, maybe not exactly the way I would do it, but it's like laid out already. A whole season is laid out. So it's a huge blueprint to start with. So now think about the writer and network television that is around September and they need to start, <laughs> they yeah. need to start developing yeah. from December. Uh, clearly, if they have a strong format to work off of, that's like 10 times faster, you know, and they're going to get to the end of December and, and mostly better shape probably than a lot of people developing their originals because they have they didn't start from a blank page. You is know, it hard to get because I'm assuming the highly esteemed writers, the auteurs, let's say they don't want to adapt something that someone else wrote. They want to create their own thing. Are you finding that even the big oh, showrunners and writers are happy if it's a good idea, they'll do whatever? Absolutely. Look, okay. uh, this, money's money. History, <laughs> yeah, look, uh, we're doing a show. Uh, we're doing a TV uh, adaptation uh, called Your Honor of, uh, of an Israeli show called Kvodo. That's with uh, Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston yeah. and um, and Peter Moffat wrote that. It was a phenomenal yeah. British writer. Yeah, I've heard of Peter. And uh, and Robert and Michelle King are producing. So here you go. These are a bunch of people that are our auteurs, all of them really uh, bona fide, and they all decided that this was something <laughs> they had to do. That is something somebody else invented because it's very powerful, and they saw the power of it early on. Yeah, uh, and they and they, and they know a good story when they see one, and they're right. So this is about storytelling, and and if you have a format somewhere else, that's that's a blessing because if you're allowed to make your own show out of it, and you can take all the good stuff that's in the format, and you have a shot at redoing the stuff that perhaps didn't work as well in yeah. the original for this reason or the other then man, you can be making your honor, uh, really with Brian Cranston. And that's, you know, like how many people in the world, uh, you know, or in America even know that Homeland is based on uh, a, an Israeli show. The people in the business know that, but people yeah. at home don't know they that. Don't they know. don't know. Well, that's a successful adaptation. Yeah. What did you think yeah. about, I was torn. A show is a show, you know, it doesn't really matter where yeah. it comes from. And, and formats, as you can see, have become a tool not only for executive, but for writers and producers to put together a show, not from scratch. That's so harder to imagine, so harder to pitch. It's so a lot more work. To, so, so more work. 
Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, I know you're now working, you have a first look deal with Apple. Is that right? Am I getting yeah. that right? That's, That's cool. Right. Is that off the success of Tehran? Yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so that's changed the game too a bit, right? Where people are buying the actual original. Yeah. Where Netflix so, and, and, and Apple and everybody, they're just like, fuck it. We'll subtitle it. People are going to watch either dubbed or subtitled. We don't even have to remake it. Yeah, well, look, um, so the business started with, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we weren't still in the subscription business. We mm-hmm. were still in the linear business and whatever HBO was putting on the air, Showtime or some big iconic American outlets, people were looking up to that. And the big deal was making an American show out of your IP. And that was largely the business that we had called Scripted World. Uh, but I started a, a company on my own about four years ago called Paper Plane Productions. And the reason I did that is because my involvement on the international side, I saw all of this coming. I, you know, I saw all of the streaming business coming. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I saw it through the eyes of Europeans, through the eyes of other mm-hmm. uh, players. And I understood uh, where it was all going and where it was all going is to a global game where you have like Netflix is really, you know, the outlet that to look at as far as like what the future looks like. It looks like that. Most of your subscribers are not from America. Most of your earnings are not from America. Mm. Therefore, a lot of your money is going to start shifting over to non-English speaking uh, content because you have a whole wide world of 7 billion people or more outside of the U.S. So that's kind of what we're experiencing now. And and that's how you saw a show like Tehran uh, happen. So I started this company and the idea was yeah, we'll still do adaptations if we think they're right. Uh, But the bigger business we thought is coming is the business of actually doing the shows that we used to once adapt (laughs) and go out there and actually make the shows with our partners that we know so well and we have great relationships. So why don't we do the shows with them? And why don't we bring our knowledge of story development and our knowledge of how to make shows and which is a little different than how they're making shows. And if that is put together with their talent, then, you know, the hope is that we're going to elevate, you know, this kind of uh, the show that we would be doing out there. And Tehran was one of the first things that came uh, on my desk. And 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 that was exactly the kind of script I was looking for that that obviously it was just the beginning and it was still in development and, you know, we're working on it, but it had that, you know, it had that spark and had that thing that, you know, wait a minute, I may be able to prove my whole theory here that there's a big business here with this show. Uh, because if we can make this cool and if this, we can elevate right. this, it's going to be great. And this is going to be a product that people are going to want to buy. And that's what happened to Tehran. It really was exactly that. We elevated it, all of us, you know, working together hard on the first season and we really shot something exceptional for a, a very low budget. And then uh, COVID hit, uh, you know, after we shot. Wait, you shot we- it with um, Israeli money as an Israeli production and then Apple TV bought it. They didn't help finance it. No, 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 they didn't finance it originally, okay. uh, but they obviously now, you know, it's their show. Right. Uh, and they took it over. But what happened is that, uh, you know, we had a deal at uh, it was set up at the Israeli public broadcaster at Khan. And and then we had another distributor, Cineflix, uh, who put up uh, the rest of the money uh, to shoot the show. And then COVID hit. Um, and mid production a- in the middle of production. Oh. We were lucky to finish production. Oh, yeah, you are lucky. We fin we wrapped up like in February, you know. Oh wow! Um, so that was really 
you know, uh, like a month or two before COVID. So what happened to us is that uh, when COVID hit, it really hit hard, uh, as you know, and the industry kind of took a bit of a shock. Uh, yeah. And as all of a sudden people realized, holy shit, this is going to take a while and we're in this for the long run. What does this mean about our content pipeline? What are we going to put? Uh, mm -hmm. We're in a subscription business. People are going to be at home now hungry for content. Right, right. Oh, this is not good. We can't shoot. <laughs> You know, so all of a sudden there was some, you know, uh, rightfully so to a certain degree, a little panic on the street, you know, sure. as far as like, so that was an amazing turning point, regardless of Tehran for for the international drama for inter the international business, because America was turning to the world to see, okay, what do you got, guys? Because I need, <laughs> I, need I mean, even shit that came out four or five years ago, right? They're like, we're going to buy it and put it on the side. Well, well, again, they wouldn't just put anything, of right. course, but they were really opening up to the fact that they need this. And, and I think that that what happened with COVID, it accelerated the idea that uh, content is now going to be floating from different parts of the world and, and it's needed. Uh, and, and it's no longer, you know, a zero sum game of an American game, but it is actually a game of multiple, multiple territories, you know. So Tehran just uh, landed in the middle of this um, panic attack too uh, in the business, you know, and all of a sudden this is exactly what everybody was looking for. Like, what is that foreign show that will play out on a level that I, you know, that's recognizable to us. Well, that's that the thing. I think you guys were smart because I feel like, and part of it's nice and part of it's like disconcerting, but I think the original content that came from Israel, I felt was unique in its storytelling, but as the budgets were getting bigger in Israel, it became more Americanized, especially the action stuff, right? You're, you're combining like the classic American action, born identity kind of thriller spy thing with Middle Eastern themes, right? I think, you know, the story of Tehran is great. And what drew me to the story was particularly the fact that it was a mission. It was a Mossad mission that went bad. And I like that part. I don't like Mossad missions that go really well because and they maybe don't. They life, haven't been going well. Right. <laughs> there been some life, maybe that's good for uh, us but in Israel. But but uh, but in drama, that doesn't really play well. Sure. And, and I like uh, that it's a woman. I like that it's a chick. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't go well, and then she goes rogue in Tehran, yeah. and then you learn that she has family there, and there's a whole other story going. I so liked it. I thought it was where great. I fell in love with the idea of making this show, because I'm like, I want to make this show. I want to make a show about people coming together in that turf, you know, and I don't just want to make a show about a mission, you know, and I think yeah. that's kind of what drew, and that ultimately what was so su successful for the show is that it was able to create these characters on both ends of the conflict of the Iranian-Israeli nuclear conflict that humanized this whole experience. Uh, and all of a sudden people fell in love with Farsi, you know, I, I try to finance a show and Farsi, it's like, imagine like, hey, uh, we're doing this show called Tehran, 50% in Farsi, anybody, anybody, hello? Any takers, hello? any Farsi? takers. Do you uh, know if places, because Israel's not the most beloved place on the planet, right? It's got some friends, but got a lot of people that aren't fans. Do you yeah. know if um, those people around the world in Various countries are considered enemies have accessed Israeli shows or just like Netflix in in Saudi Arabia. Well, I don't know if Saudi Arabia because I know they do deals with Israel now, but, you know, in, in territories that are really anti-Israel, does Netflix not show, do not have Fauda on there? You know what I mean? I do they actually know. not put the Israeli content on there or does the people, you know, does is there a, some someone who hates Israel is secretly watching Shtisel and loving it? 
I'm not sure, you know, that's a really good question. I have not checked if they changed the lineup according to the territories. Yeah. I'm sure there's some content that's sensitive for some territories and they might have to, you know, shift that. I don't know that for a fact, but I can imagine that that, that happens once in a while. Yeah. Uh, and there's some sensitivity around. It's just sad because I think TV can bring people uh, together. And if someone that, you know, hates Israel you, and sees a great show, they're like, oh, these guys aren't but so I'll bad. Tell you, uh, and uh, there's a, obviously, you know, Fauda, which is a very successful Israeli show. And and, and, to, and to, in many degrees, you know, Tehran uh, came on the heels of Fauda. And I think Fauda kind of opened up that mm -hmm. uh, gateway of like, hey, we can make something in Israel that's going to be a worldwide phenomena. And then Tehran came and kind of banked on that idea too, you know? Right. Uh, uh, and so, so, but Fauda, the great story about Fauda, or one of the great stories that I heard about Fauda um, is that um, it, uh, Hamas was of course uh, uh, publicly denouncing the show as a Zionist show, as a this, that, you know, all that other stuff. That's good publicity. But then, but then they put it on their website, the episode. <laughs> And everybody was watching it. It was a hit over there. So it's really funny. They actually had it on their official website. With know? like links and maybe uh, some merch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and while denouncing it, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we know also Tehran, you know, I, I, in, in the case of Tehran, I don't think the government has it on their official website, but but we do know uh, that that it's very buzzed around there. And, and, and uh, we were... We get a lot of spreads in the newspapers there in the local newspapers. Mm -hmm. They write about the show and the Zionists that make the show yeah. and all yeah. that stuff. But I'm sure it only creates a bigger following, an underground following for the I'm show. I'm sure. I mean, I think especially the younger generation, they like they like good TV. And Iran has had always a robust film movement. I mean, Iranians were doing undercover films like the films that come out of Iran are amazing. Amazing. Absolutely. So, the, you know, Tehran was a smart show. And, and, and I think what was fresh about it when people in Israel watched it for the first time, a lot of people called me and said, this doesn't feel like an Israeli show. We don't make shows that are this fast, boom, 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 right. boom, like that. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what happens when people come together on a show and they're not all from the same country and they don't have the same necessarily story, culture and so forth. And that's exactly what we're trying right. to do. We're trying to come together and say, well, what happens if we bring some of our influence into it? What is it going to do to the product? And in this case, I'm hoping that what it did is kind of, as you said, maybe Americanized it in, in a good sense that it made it more universal. It made it uh, at a pace that people were at the edge of their seats universally have the same experience. I have American parents here in L.A., and my son's school that are not from Israel and actually not even Jewish, you know, have nothing yeah. to do uh, with our issues. <laughs> and they would tell me, you know, we checked out the show because we know you. So we figured we'll check out the show, you know, uh, and they didn't know what to think. You know, it's like, oh, Tehran, what is that? And and they laugh because they say we couldn't sleep the whole weekend. We were binging it like crazy. That's so fantastic. It, 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 you know what I mean, it has that effect on people, no matter what their background is. It seems to have the same effect universally on people when they start watching it, like like you had with Homeland at the time or you had with uh, 24, you had with all these kind of shows that were just like, you know, magnet shows that you you started watching. Well, I think you, one thing we do well, uh, Americans, I mean, one thing we do well is action. You know, we know action. We know big yeah. budget action better than anybody else. I've always yeah. associated the Europeans with a slower, more languid and definitely more titties, you know, even on public TV <laughs> in Germany, my God. 
but just more <laughs> character-driven stuff. And I think America yeah. was always known for a little bit of kitsch, definitely good with the sitcoms and like the over-the-top yeah. jokey shit. But it's, yeah. um, you know, we weren't as strong with like the character. And I think that maybe Israel, and I want to hear what you think about the culture that's that that, ma- that has made this such a hub, is that that kind of balancing out of character-driven stuff with fast pace, because Israelis are feisty fuckers, you know? And so they don't have time. Like the French, their movie can be five hours long and nothing happens. And maybe at the end, someone dies, but you don't know why, you know? Yeah. But it's like, Isra- <laughs> like, it's all very character-driven, because I guess when you have low budgets, what else are you going to do? You know what I right. mean? So. Yeah. And uh, look, I mean, first of all, some of this newfound success of, of shows like Fauda or Tehran, they're happening because of the platforms that took them on. Mm-hmm. Let's remember that, too. The impact is very strong now that you have these global. So I know uh, that, uh, you know, Apple TV took Tehran and took a great show and really but they elevated it to the next level and they made it into a global hit. Right. And they treat it like diamonds. So that's something. And, and Netflix did, you know, a lot of the same for Fauda, uh, you know, and made it into a household hit around the world. That's an impact that was harder to make 10 years ago with Linear because, you know, it would air in different times in different countries. So it would air there only six months later. And mm. so there wasn't this big So it was never a buzz about impact. it. Right. Right. Now, when you have these shows that go on a streamer, they come out the same day for the whole world. Boom. And if they're good and if they're the thing, then boom, the fire just lits up. And it, and and that's what Apple did for Tehran, too. And that's what, you know, Netflix at the time did for Fauda or Casa del Papel. So it's that it's really great because you can have that impact today with local shows. Now, with Israelis. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot about budget. It's about the reality that you can't just do action sequences and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you really have to dig in. And literally, that's how, uh, you know, treatment is like the definition of two people in a room. It's right? the epitome of that no budget. Good. Yeah. One. You know, but I, I mean, obviously, it's amazing to me because I'm sure that Israel doesn't have remotely as large a stable of writers as you have in in the U.S., but they're still churning out really fucking good content. Is it the same 10, 20 writers that are doing all those big hits? Look, there's a new generation also of writers in Israel now that have, uh, you know, they they didn't grow up with one channel like some of us. They 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 grew up with cable, and then and then they grew up with internet. The new, you know, the younger Mm -hmm. ones. So now it's all different generation. They're actually learning from shows how to make shows. You know, they're sitting at home and watching uh, and binging all these shows on streaming. They're smart kids. You know, they put one and one together. They break down the episodes. They, you know, there's a lot. Lot of the self-teaching going on in the world right now also because we don't have a lot of great teachers that yeah. the teacher currently Not so much role a, models rolling around there right well, now yeah. a bit of, this is a this is a new thing you know serialized television so it hasn't like we don't have enough people in, in the uh, universities you know teaching this on the level that the industry is There's still a bit of a gap there between uh, universities and the industry and, and the tv part of it uh, but uh, so it's 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 uh, it's definitely, you know, Israel is a, an intense place with an intense reality between the wars and the history of it and everything that goes on there politically. And it, it's a small place and, you know, it gets tight mm-hmm. and it gets in your face and there's a real reality to it. And I think that, you know, creates a world for creators to, to go and dig deeper. They tend to be, you know, Americans are always very impressed about how intense 
uh, Israeli drama is. They call it intense. Right. And for Israel, it's just like a random Tuesday. <laughs> correct. And it reflects an intense reality. And also there's something about Middle, uh, not all, also Middle Eastern, but Mediterranean sort mm -hmm. of culture, mm -hmm. yeah. which is like, you'll find that in Italy and you'll find that in Greece and you'll find right. that in different, I'm sure in Turkey and, and different places, which is people can have a, an all out fight and yell and curse each other and stab each other in the back. And two hours later, they're like having drinks and you know right. laughing out loud again and you're looking at them like are you crazy uh because like in the western world if you have a fallout like that with somebody then that's it it's a fallout there's no two hours later we forgot about it so it, there's much more of this bipolar kind of uh, existence. It's crazy town it's fucking crazy town i'm wondering why israel is a small country why proportionate why isn't greece churning out or other you know, countries in Europe, Italy churning out all this amazing TV. Is there just a hunger for people to get out of Israel? They're just hoping to hit it big and leave. You think that's I part think, of the motivator? I think it's a combination. Uh, it's cultural, first of all. I think Israelis have always been look at the high tech business. You yeah. know, once they were in that, they like they're just they're very hungry. They're very uh, ambitious. Yeah, uh, they come from a small country and they don't think, uh, you know, it's all about the country, but how to succeed outside of the country. And um, so they're they're very entrepreneurial, you know, in their right. spirit. Uh, yeah. And that leaks over to content, to the content business as well. The numbers in the content business are <laughs> like, like the high tech business. But but the attitude is starting to be the same. And the fact that you have so many kids and so many people in Israel today sitting at home and dreaming about the next global TV hit is an interesting, you know, phenomena. And I just think it's a, it's a matter of uh, uh, being ambitious and not having uh, and going on holiday for three months a year, like, you know, some countries uh, in Europe or whatnot, <laughs> you know. So it's sort of like it's a different mentality. Like Italy. Let's just say it. Yeah. Italy. You can't, nobody um, works July and August. Like literally no one works. You can't change culture. If people are more laid back, then they're not going to be the first <laughs> to try to make shows. You know, they're right. going to be the last ones because, you know, they're laid back. So it's it's part of this, you know, go yeah. get go get them kind of, uh, you know, I'm culture. always amazed that in L.A., you know, I spent uh, years in L.A. and it's very hard to stay motivated because L.A. is so comfortable and relaxing yeah. that it's easy to just coast and let the years go by. Every day is the fucking same. The sun's the same. You know, the sky's the same. And then it's hard to stay motivated because like in New York, you have yeah. to justify why you're paying five grand in rent right. a month and everybody's ambitions in your face. And in LA, you, that's why you meet a lot of people that are just stuck there. You know what I mean? They're like, oh yeah, I've been trying to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude. It's so true. Um, I don't, not to sound morbid, but I, uh, I saw this architecture book uh, years ago in L.A. It was about L.A., uh, but it was an architecture mm -hmm. book. <laughs> and the quote from the author on the back of the book was, L.A. is like a sunlit mortuary where you can rot without feeling it. Yeah, it's and, like uh, a frog in the water. It like 10 times, but on the 10th <laughs> time, it completely, you know, it think, it sunk in. But then the fact is, it's uh, also the creative hub and, you know, the, the no, industry. Sure. So it's like, it's such a weird but dichotomy. I, but I, I'll tell you something, it's not the same anymore because, yeah, it, it, for so many years, it used to be like the largest, cheapest right. city in America, right? Yeah. Like you could live here for nothing and yeah. you could live like in the valley here for less than Get nothing. Get a house with a pool and, and a couple like, of dancing girls. Was, yeah. 
ridiculous. So that created the culture of like, oh, everything is comfortable and I don't have to sweat so much to pay rent. So I can just hang out here for 20 years, not realizing mm -hmm. that my life is slipping yeah. away or something like that. I don't know. So, but it's not like that anymore. It's actually expensive now, not like, in, not like New, not York, New York, yeah. but, but still it, LA became so much more expensive than it was, you know, in the nineties and the early 2000s, mm -hmm. the whole other economy here now. So I think there's less of that, like I'm going to hang out here for 15 years now because there's cheap rent because there isn't cheap rent anymore. Um, and also one thing about LA and Hollywood and this industry that I always say that it's a phenomenon. It's like this really manipulative lover. Um, Hollywood. And I think everybody experiences on some level, which is to say that it always gives you hope. <laughs> you, everybody thinks it's right around the corner. Hope. Everybody yeah, thinks it's, it's right around it's, the corner for yeah, them. Yeah, because I had this good meeting and she said, I'm amazing. Right. And yeah. or yeah. he said, I'm amazing, you know, and I went back home and it created a whole world for me. And there, the, there's no reality to Nothing it. Happened. No, I get it. I get it. I tried a career in modeling. Way, that didn't pan out. You know, yeah. the, this industry has this way of constantly luring you in, sort of like, don't yeah. go yet. It's it's going to happen it's in a minute. Happen. You just need you one know. thing. And, just that uh, one thing. Know, and it's a little, uh, you know, it's a little dangerous because you don't really know what to believe anymore. You know, people are, you know, being nice because why not? You know, they, they should be I nice. I haven't found but... that, though. I found that when I dabbled in the industry a bit, people were always very direct with me. We don't mm. like it. It's not going to work. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes I get the call later where they'd be like, we, we were great. You feel you walk out feeling like you did great in the room and then oh, we're so yeah. sorry, it's not for us or it's not in our wheelhouse. I love that fucking word, wheelhouse. I don't want to hear about anybody's wheelhouse. What wheelhouse are you talking about? It's not my wheelhouse. I'm like, I don't have the bandwidth. I'm like, don't, don't give me radio terms now, the bandwidth. We'll circle back. We're so, we'll, circle we'll circle back when at the time is, we have things on our slate. And I'm like, enough with the fucking jargon. Just, it's either now or never. I got to, you know, I need Instagram. Oh, and I love the, uh, it overlaps. It overlaps. With oh, that's, a, I just see, I've never encountered an overlap. I think my ideas are so unique. They never overlap, but. I'm always amazed that people are creative there and maybe, I don't know, again, I'm making assumptions, but because there's such a lack of uh, interaction with other humans on a, on a street level, you know what I mean? The interactions are so isolated in Los Angeles as opposed to city life and Europe. Yeah. And in Europe, you know, there's a diversity of cultures. Like you hop on a train in a couple hours, you're in a completely different culture. But in California, some people haven't left the state. They don't know, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. You can really stay isolated in your bubble where do great ideas come? Where are you creating from? Either they're people from the East Coast that came out or people from Atlanta, anywhere in, in the country except California. And if you're doing California, you're writing something about a nature. You're making a nature documentary because people are hiking all day, yeah, right. right? No, you're right. Uh, look, you go back to our conversation about formats and all that. Part of the reason that uh, you know formats became so popular uh, here for adaptations is because it was helping these big showrunners who had big deals and were getting, were getting paid a lot of money from studios and networks to come up with these things. And uh, to quote uh, more than one agent or executive, you know, how many great ideas are you going to have next to your pool in Brentwood? You know, right, exactly. No, uh, I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not fair for everybody, of course, not everybody's. Yeah. No, there's people that are very creative that have never left the house. Yeah, there's sure. some amazing geniuses that live amongst us here, of course. But uh, but I'm, I'm saying generally it's true. And 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 what what comes out of these formats is that a, a different life experience wrote those formats and created them. And therefore, they become very sexy for people who live out here and have a life that is, you know, within the sort of perimeters of Hollywood and they don't get yeah. to 
dip into like real, real life uh, that often. And all of a sudden they get this show that just comes like from Borgen. a different- Like Borgen, I like Borgen or know, Nobel. Yeah. And so, and, and, and also I think that this lends itself to also not only because of politics, I really think the issue of diversity in America and why you're seeing so many more diverse uh, creators getting a chance. Yes, of course, we're, this is part of a whole wave of, of, of this happening uh, for women and for uh, uh, diverse uh, uh, people. That's happening politically for sure, but it's also because I believe they're bringing something fresh to storytelling as well, just like international forum formats are bringing other oh a hundred percent i mean different perspectives i mean i feel like so, you know so by the pool and bradwood come from them in the next yeah. several years and not from another you know oh, you're right a big show I, mean, runner. I, I feel like if you're living an isolated life you're either making science really good science fiction you got to create fantasy worlds or you're making something about the nuclear family because that's the, the thing you can relate to but you're not dealing with bigger themes but exactly. I do wonder, because I never I never know what the, the Netflix analytics are. You know, you don't get the Nielsen ratings or the demographics or I guess they're giving away numbers a little bit now, but I don't know about Apple either. But you used to know exactly, you know, in this percent, this demographic and, you know, ethnicity or whatever, who's watching what, there. you don't know. Yeah, we're not there yet with uh, streaming rating because it, they're kind of deciding on the rules of the game. So um uh, it, it it's not and and i'll tell you the and they're changing it too now they do, actually netflix just announced that they're going to be you know making changes to the way they um process their rating data i think part of the problem that you saw recently is that you could a show could launch on netflix and netflix would come out with this list that shows it's uh, in the top 10 most watched but then uh, a couple of months later it's canceled right everybody's sort of shocked like why is it canceled? It was on the top 10. And so you got to know that there's probably a gap between how many people tried it out and how many people actually finished watching the season, which is the important part of the data. If you want to renew a show, uh, you're not going to renew a show just because somebody checked out half of a first episode. That's right. not the basis to renew a right. show. Even a first episode and then go beyond that. So I think data ratings data right now are still being used for marketing purposes, mostly. Uh, but it catches up with you because when you need to cancel a show, uh, then you really like have to explain what, how it is that you declared this a winner five minutes ago. And now it turns out it's not. Well, so that's where, you know, they probably thought, yeah, you know, we should probably you know get this to a place where it's a little more uh, consistent with the shows that we're going to renew. I mean, I'm confused because I don't know. You know, if, yeah, if it's number one in the U.S. number because it goes by country. Like, I don't know where what the Indian viewers are watching. Did they all watch Queen's Gambit? Are they loving Made? I don't know if they're all watching oh, it, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter because as you can see, like with uh, Squid Games, right? right? You're talking about uh, now, uh, I think, uh, close to 170 million people. Uh, checked out that show on one level or the other. That's just a lot of people, <laughs> you know? A lot of people watching, uh, yeah. But I also wonder- so, yeah, there's a breakdown to it, but honestly, that's the business. The business is a global business. And the, every year that will go by, all of these streamers will have more and more subscribers overseas. And these are the kind of numbers you're going to see, like box office numbers, like how many people checked out this thing, you know? And you're going to see some tremendous numbers. You have made that made it to 70 or 80 million. I views. just watched that. I, I thought it was depressing, uh, but delightful. I really did. I thought it was really well done. But really I great. wonder, I mean, I guess this is explain this to me because I'm a little confused when you're dealing with 
you know, if you're a broadcast network and it's really important to know viewers because that's the advertisers, right? How many people are we reaching, right? Like advertisers need to know that there's got to be a hit show by this and this numbers. But when you're dealing with subscribers, I mean, Netflix, do they really care that 90,000 million people like Squid Game? No one's joining Netflix just because of Squid Game. Oh, absolutely. They are. Oh, they are. Okay. So they're wrong. All right. Fair enough. That's what they know about the subscription game. Okay. they realize that, of course, they get many more uh, subscriptions when they have these shows that are being buzzed about. So, so if Squid Game is a great example uh, of a show that's creating a lot of buzz, and so people who don't have Netflix might just be the reason. Okay, let me. I'll fine. I'll do Netflix. Fine. Right. You know. Uh, so it 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 does show. It 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 definitely uh, was ticking mm-hmm. up. Because okay. of the uh, right. last couple shows they put, so they know that they know that there's a direct relationship between, you know, the hot content that you're going to put on the air and continuing to get more subscriptions. I mean, the reason you're going to get more subscriptions at one point, look, they're in most territories today, Netflix, as opposed to the others who are getting there, uh, but they're in, all, in almost every territory you can be. So now it's about, and it's going to be like that once everybody's on uh, globally it's going to be competition for subscriptions and people are not going to subscribe to everything. Right. So it's going to be a competition. I, subscribe to, I got everything. I got Hulu, Disney. Plus, what is Netflix, going to Amazon win? Prime. Of course you start that way, but over time people are going to catch up with their bills and go, what, right. the, what the hell? Is going on? I, know, I haven't I'm caught up. I'm not, I haven't even watched this thing or that thing. Yeah. So, so the point is, is that at the end of the day, what are the streamers going to be competing on in each territory? On content, on the best content. This is what it's going to be about. What, why do be people that. have yeah. Disney Plus? They have Disney Plus because of Star Wars, because of uh, Disney, because of uh, right. Pixar, because of all the great libraries they have. So, and and that gets you going. But you got to continue offering. You got to keep providing, to right? There's only so much. You know, I keep watching. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely it's right. It's going to be about exclusive, premium content. Uh, in each of these platforms and whoever has more of it is going to enjoy consistency and growth and uh and subscriptions because people are going to flock to the shows eventually do you think it's different because i know like i have hbo max well i have hbo and i have hbo max now hbo for me had a very specific brand and i kind of knew what i was getting into and they were very selective and i knew that if they were they were putting money into a show it was going to be a quality show now, I feel like the Netflix model is a bit different because they run the gamut, right? From soapy stuff to high quality to high end. They have some for everybody. But HBO is yeah. not doing that. HBO is not scrambling for that. Is HBO Max scrambling for that? Like the broader demographic? Well, HBO Max is trying to extend uh, the, you know, the, the label of HBO. So the original HBO. And, and it's definitely a challenge. Uh, how do you go wider on your volume without losing uh, your the brand, quality? Right. Yeah. You're, yeah. yeah. And, and that's been, you know, definitely a challenge over there. But, you know, I think they're going to find their way because they definitely have such a strong brand, you know, and most of the shows that are out there that people buzz about many times end up being their shows. Um, so they, they definitely know what uh, they're doing there. But it's not easy. It's not easy to take those handful or dozen shows that you make in a year, you know, that are so good and, and expand that to like 40 shows, you know, of or course, 30. it's hard to compete with Netflix that doesn't care as much. They don't mind putting some crap on if they also have some good stuff on. They're like, we don't but care. Netflix, 
Netflix has a different model. Netflix yeah. is everything. They want to literally everything. Literally. Yeah, but that's a model too. You literally know? everything. They want to be your one-stop shop for every television you need, from scripted to documentary to reality to hopefully right. sports Obscure. and all that. Obscure. Yeah. And they don't. I have don't know why Netflix has not gone into porn because I still feel like that. Is it because there's a lot of porn that's free? You never know. I mean, yeah. are they going to purchase Pornhub? I feel like there's going to be a merger because there's got to be some sort of marriage between, you know what I mean? I just yeah. saw a movie Voyeurs that was on Netflix. That was like softcore porn, but it was like under, it was shot really nicely and had a little bit of story because I'm a woman. I like that. Oh but that was just, that was like Skinamax, man. And I was like, okay, call it a movie. Call it what you want. I called it porn. But you never it, know. It's you just never me. Know. I'm just That's saying. Mark my words. Raylan said it here first. Netflix is going to buy, <laughs> either start making Netflix X, XX or something. There's going to be another offshoot. Pornflix. Pornflix. <laughs> Make it sound cinematic. So before we wrap up, Alone, Alon, Elon, Aaron, <laughs> and any other uh, iteration, what do you have going on now? What are you developing that you can talk about that no one's going to steal? And like, what's in the works for you? We're making a bunch of shows now, but we're actually shooting right now a new Dutch show, original Dutch show that mm. speaks Dutch uh, called Bestseller Boy. It's a co-production with CBS Studios International and the public broadcaster in Holland. And uh, it's an exciting show. It's based on a best-selling book by a young Dutch Moroccan writer oh, cool. and about his experiences. He, he wrote a, uh, his first book became really big and then it changed his whole life. And everybody turned on him. And, and it's kind of the story of this immigrant and the story of identity and, and the story of what is it like to be uh, that person uh, living in Holland at this time uh, and having that success. So uh, a little bit of a Californication, like a younger mm -hmm. Californication, something very, very different than uh, Tehran, of course, but, uh, but really exciting, really fun. All kind of takes place in Amsterdam and in and around Amsterdam. So Amsterdam's fun. Dutch fun. is a hard language. I mean, I don't like Hebrew, but Dutch is, is equally <laughs> ugly as Hebrew. I mean, it's I a lot of tach-tach. There's a lot no. going on there. No. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, so you're um, doing that. You're doing season two of Tehran. Did I get renewed? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and we're developing. She is hot. Two. Can I just say how hot she is? She is hot. Yeah, she's, she's hot. Great. And I, does she's she do comedy too? Is she funny? Can she do comedy? I'm sure. I'm sure she did. Uh, she did comedy. Uh, did and uh, season two is with Glenn Close. So that's really Ooh, exciting. You know, I love yeah. Damages. That's one of my favorite shows ever. Yeah. So this is her. <gasps> is she like her handler? Time. Is she her handler now or something? She hasn't done TV since uh, Damages. So this really? is really exciting. Yeah, we're, wow. we're bringing her back to TV. Um, so it's really fun and uh, we're shooting and we're developing uh, season two of your honor with Brian Cranston. Okay. That's uh, that got okay. renewed. I got to so, catch that then. I saw a little bit of it, but I haven't gotten into it. Really? I love him too. So, and I think the ethical oh, dilemma yeah. there was very interesting. The setup sucked me in. It's a very interesting, you know, for those that haven't watched it, right. It's a judge who suddenly his son commits a murder hit and run or something, right. Or something like that. Yeah, he hits a motorcyclist and kills him by mistake. Um, but right. it turns out that, that kid is the son of the biggest mobster in town. Mm. So the judge cannot, you know, hand right. his kid to the cops because yeah. he will be killed immediately. Right. So he goes on a journey to cover up the crime. That's amazing. Um, and it. it's, it's phenomenal. It's so universal. I mean, you know, here's a story that was invented by Shlomo Mashiach and the one in Nino in Israel and comes from a different reality. And yet, 
everybody that hears the one-liner of it and the story of it immediately wants to make this show and has the same reaction to it, no matter if they're Japanese or they're British. Yeah. Or they're, oh, yeah, because it's a perfect, like, setup. It's that kind of, you know, that terrible bind you find. You rock in a hard place. Exactly. Anybody loves a good gangster, too. You know what I mean? A little gangster, a little mob <laughs> action. So are you so allowed to develop shows for anything other than Apple TV now? Yeah, it's, okay. it's a first look deal, but it's not exclusive. So. Got it. Okay, I didn't know what that meant, first look. Yeah. So they have the first choice, but if they don't want it, you can go anywhere. That's right. Well, I want to pitch like 45 shows to you. So once we're done here, <laughs> I have a binder of stuff, yeah. <laughs> and it's all great. It's all brilliant. So, well, thank Got you, it. Alon. Thank uh, you. It was an honor to, to, to talk to you, and um, I look forward to seeing more of your content on all the streamers and, you know, get that to number thank one you. trending and the... Uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you for coming. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Raylan Casper White, <laughs> signing off. <laughs>